fellow citizens. Let's, let's be let's be, be bluntly honest. Who's the heavyweight champion of the world? In my opinion, still and perhaps always will be the greatest. There's so much there. Okay, yeah. What are we doing, great champion? You help to unite our nation. The cry for freedom has only sport to pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's, 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 nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. Welcome back to Sports and Society. We're here on June 7th. This is Brad. I'm here with Kyle. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing pretty well. I was just sharing off air that the uh, troubling reality of our culture these past few days is I I can't say I'm doing great. Uh, you know, it's it's troubling to look out on the world and the discomfort is very real and we probably should be a little uncomfortable, but nonetheless, it's uncomfortable. But what about you? Yeah, very much the same place. It kind of... Um judging my level of discomfort and trying to understand my own reactions to everything that's going on um and understanding what like where my where i fit in it i guess has been the big thing in some ways like i want to do something but i'm not sure i should be doing anything or or where i'm supposed to go um it's just an interesting and difficult time much less so for us than many others but um regardless it uh uh, I think it's healthy to have some kind of anxiety in some small portion, although for those of us that have more issues with that anyway, it can be a little difficult. Yeah, that's well said. And I think it's uh, not to just make it too obvious, but and I'm, I'm thinking of a, a Dave Zirin article I read this week where he was making the point of uh, – how critical athletes are uh, when it comes to race in America. And so um, before we talk about what we paid attention to this week, I, I think it's worth saying that like that's our main topic for the week. Um, so to s- talk about things that we were paying attention to that necessarily aren't about that uh, isn't to say we're not thinking that because we're going to think about it a lot. Yes, indeed. And I think it's probably very appropriate for us to just come out here at the beginning and say that we, uh, as a podcast, believe that Black Lives Matter. Um, And uh, I think we probably have, I won't out us here, but we probably have rather radical thoughts about how to to change the system in productive and meaningful ways. Indeed. Yes. And in no way, shape, or form would I want to appropriate the phrase, but uh, a podcast I listen to from time to time, the Burn It All Down podcast, uh, feminist sports podcast of, I I think we would uh, stand with others and rejoice if a lot of the structures that surround sports were burned down uh, and we kind of started over. So (laughs) to say we're radical in that way, I think is pretty fair. Well, I will use that as a as a bridge to um, our first uh, conversation about this past week that doesn't dig into our main topic, which is what a shit show Major League Baseball looks like at the moment, and wouldn't it be joyful if that system got overturned because of all this? It it, it is so predictable and so easy to understand that they can't seem to understand each other that being the owners and the players or maybe more specifically the owners are unwilling to give up any sort of power wherever they feel they can get it is my conclusion yeah and it's of course it you know it's shocking to me in some ways and i don't you know i don't know the ins and outs of the financial situations of these leagues but the NBA has seemed to have next to no drama about their plans. Um, and it's a majority African-American league, whereas Major League Baseball, which uh, I suppose at this point is majority Hispanic, although we still see a lot of uh, white folks and uh, white players in positions of power, uh, is saying, no, 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 wait a minute. We got to get our money. Uh, we got to figure it out, which I give them credit for, but it's sure it's sure hard to not miss the the that component of it in there. Absolutely, and I think what stood out to me, or what I gleaned from the NBA story, I guess maybe we should give a little bit of 
uh, news on what's happening in in the, insofar as to give context for what we're talking about. But the NBA is coming back. Uh, they are going to play all the games at the well, what's it called? Like the Wide World of Sports Walt Disney mm-hmm. Center in Orlando. And I want to talk more about the logistics of that, but the short version of the story is that the NBA is coming back and they're going to play all the games in one place. And the goal is to create a sort of bubble within which the NBA can operate. And Major League Baseball is attempting to do the same, but they haven't been able to pull it off. And the conclusion I drew from the NBA story is that the players union was consulted every step of the way. Mm -hmm. And they were like before any sort of decision was made amongst the owners and the league itself and the commissioner, uh, the players were part of that decision making. So before it even went to the players union for a vote, they were consulted at every single step. And while the union in major league baseball was being, um, kept up to date they weren't incorporated in the kind of design of what was happening it seemed as both sides were just saying we want this as opposed to saying would this work kind of thing uh and so in that way uh i guess the bottom i tried to understand mlb as best i could it's quite confusing Mm -hmm. to get into what mlb is facing uh partly is because so many games have to be played it seems like part of the problem and why that matters is because of television contracts, and that's where the real money is, is in the telev- televising of it. And I I understood it that the players are holding their ground, and they feel, um, and I'm, I'm entirely with them, that they have been shorted now for a long time because of these massive television deals in the sense that that money is not being shared equally. Uh, and so while television contracts have grown at a certain rate, player contracts have not grown at the same rate. And so teams and owners have made a lot more money more quickly than the players have. And so they're saying until we see that ratio that we want in this specific deal, then we're out. Uh, whereas NBA is kind of more collectivized, so to speak. Um, yeah. And I think that, um, to build on that piece, I think that we could also have probably predicted this if we thought about it longer, that the NBA would move forward, given that they've kind of come to grips with the player power movement. Um, whereas we saw last summer with the whole Manny Machado and Bryce Harper and the rest of the free agent stuff from last summer, that uh, Major League Baseball players are not happy at all with the systems that are in place and the way teams are handling these things. So it's probably, um, I think, safe to assume that a lot of that anger from these past deals and these past systems are what are raising their head now in these negotiations. Yeah, absolutely. What do you make of the NBA's plan? Well, first, I think the other aspect to put on the table here is just that the NBA um, put a bunch of different options on the table. Like they really seem to open it up and say, all right, we're, anything, anything is a potential here. And that's how we wind up with this. So not every NBA team is coming back. Only 22 of the teams are going to be playing in this system. Um, and that's okay. Everybody seems to be okay with that. Um, and uh, except for one team, I, uh, the trailblazers didn't like the plan. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I, uh, you know, I think it's a, going to be a fun thing you know i i know there's some concern about having them play so many games in so little time but i'm kind of excited to see what the bubble produces in some ways yeah it i i i am am too i'm excited to see the games being played and to see them in a in a odd different context i guess for me it's just so odd (laughs) It's like hard to grasp what it's going to be like. And so I think in some ways I'll be watching just to see what it's like, uh, which I think is what I would say I have been doing with uh, German soccer is I think the first week it was interesting. And then this week uh, I wasn't as interested. Mm. Um, And so I wonder if that NBA is going to experience something like that of where it's kind of being watched for a novelty. And then if, uh, if, 
that which is makes the NBA great isn't as available or present in the in the form that they're um, going to attempt to do, then I wonder what will happen. I guess is a question I have. So I guess there's just a lot of curiosity around it for me. Yeah, same here. Although I think that the NBA is perhaps um, in a better position than many of the soccer leagues and many of the other leagues, just in the fact that in basketball we have this very clear trajectory to how people play without fans around. I mean, like how mm-hmm. many of these guys grew up on courts playing with nobody around? Whereas right. you know these soccer, I mean, like even these under twenty teams would have had a significant number of fans. Um, at, at their games. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I do think, um, you know, particularly if they, I don't know what they're going to play in, but I can imagine it in a small gym that there's almost a situation where people love the fact that there's nobody there and it's just mm-hmm. these players going at each other. Uh, I mean, it's almost like we get to see that, uh, that dream team footage that we all want to see in some ways, like that inside look. Um, that's the best case scenario it seems to me yeah i agree i i was thinking of the dream team footage and i was also thinking of michael jordan's uh mm-hmm. um studio lot <laughs> basketball games and then also of how in the last few years the nba offseason pickup games are create some of the best highlights and most compelling watching uh, because it's just individuals competing, and it's not just any individuals. It's the greatest basketball players in the world mm-hmm. uh, playing for no audience, and there's something really compelling about that, um, that it's not so much a performance as it is what something that you and I, I think, are compelled by and hope that sports can exploit in a good way, that being just competitiveness and uh, athleticism for the sake of athleticism and comp- competition and have it not be so shrouded in capitalism. I mean, this still is, but we might get a semblance, <laughs> right, of like uh, a more pure version of it. Yeah. Well, what have you been paying attention to, man? Uh, I think outside of what's going on in the NBA and Major League Baseball, I I finally got around to watching the Novak jo- or Novak Djokovic uh, interviews that he was doing with friends, oh, yeah. and then also watched a couple of uh, Rafa calling people. They're really delightful. <laughs> yeah, they seem so nice. It's amazing. They seem so nice, uh, and they're just the conversation is thoughtful. Uh, I watched a couple with Andy Murray talking to different athletes. Uh, he talked to a guy, a young guy that's with Manchester United. I forget his name. They had a really pleasant, thoughtful conversation, um, talking about the world, talking about sports, talking about what it's like to uh, be a professional athlete in just really touching ways. And so I just would give a shout out to those are worth watching. They're really pleasant. Oh, yes. Uh, that has been, those kind of interactions have been the best part of this whole last few months in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. You know, this a big part of what we try and do on this podcast, right, is humanize the behavior in sports. And they've done a pretty tremendous job of humanizing themselves. A lot of these athletes have. And I, I don't want to analyze it too much because I don't know how significant it is. But I think what came across for me in the top four, right? So those four guys, uh, Novak, Andy, Rafa, and Roger, uh, have been the face of tennis for, you know, most of our adult life, really. Mm-hmm. And I I just absorbed a, I, it almost sounds like a slight, I need to maybe think of a better way to say it, but just a, a vast maturity in the sense that like I just think of how much life those guys have lived mm. and they all kind of at, at different points had conversations about injuries and what injuries meant for them they were all talking about retirement and how this has made them think about retirement and Andy Murray had some really thoughtful things to say about you know that which plagues a lot of professional athletes of like the fear of what am I going to do with my life and they were all saying like all of them had in common the thread that 
they have never been in a place for more than five weeks since they were like 17 or 18 mm. and how much they love being in place. And they were scared about that. They didn't know how they would deal with that. Uh, Rafa says he has not been playing at all. Um, like hasn't touched a racket since the last tournament at Indian Wells. Um, and says he's like as happy as he's ever been. Um, and the real common thread for all of them was that they're with their family and with their kids. Um, and so I, it, that was all just real touching and a reminder that they're humans, but also I was struck by their maturity. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Well, so two things. One, just kind of building on that a little bit. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Phil Guyman or not, but um, former professional cyclist who's now in some ways still a professional cyclist, but does weird challenges. Um, mm-hmm. So for a short period of time, he held the Everesting record, which I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. But um, essentially, how fast can you climb the number of vertical feet in Everest? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he did like seven hours and 50 minutes. And then like it was broken two days later, um, but still pretty fun um, yeah. stuff. He did, released a clip yesterday day before um that was talking about so there's a there's a world bike shortage right now because during this pandemic everyone has wanted to get a bike to go ride Mm -hmm. bikes um and it was like uh i really appreciate it because it was only he directed like the first minute to new people on the bike he's like hey do whatever you want to do like just be yourself and go ride your bike and then the second half was like, hey, old dudes that are riding your bikes, don't be telling young folks what to do when on their bikes, these new bike riders. Don't be telling mm-hmm. them they need to do this, why, and this. Bike shops, don't be telling them to get all that stuff because you know they'll be back in a year when they're addicted and they'll beat it all then. Right. Um, and I just appreciated that, like, hey, let's take a let's, – uh, let's be welcoming in this new community space, um, which I found – quite refreshing but then on the other side i found uh, uh, a statement um which may be a segue into our broader conversation um uh, i uh you know as we get into the the black lives matter stuff um uh, of course we saw a lot of stuff this week and of all things we saw the nfl apologize for past behavior which was staggering and amazing and yet also felt really empty to me. Um, mm-hmm. so I don't know how it felt to you. I, you know, it, uh, it's perhaps feels that way in some ways because I had seen so many other corporate, um, entities come forward and say things that I am fairly certain there will be no long-term ramifications of. Um, and I feel like that's likely what this means is it's a bit of lip service here at the moment. Um, it's not like, um, you know, long before the NFL banned these things, these teams were reluctant to get engaged in these conversations. It's not like all of a sudden the Baltimore Ravens are totally going to be acceptable of accepting of whatever their players choose to do and be how they choose to be politically active. And it's not like fans are going to change how they think about these things or are, are, um, less than esteemed president is going to be okay with it. So uh, it just feels a very empty um, and too late statement. Indeed. I, I, yeah, maybe it could be a good segue. Do you want to maybe go ahead and introduce what we want to talk about more fully? Sure. So I think this week we're going to, we're going to build off of um, the comments that Drew Brees made this week and the backlash and his subsequent apology. Um, but he came out uh, while this was going on and essentially said, uh, I will never be okay with people disrespecting the flag, which is such an asinine argument. I don't even think we need to get into that. Um, it's just stupid, Drew. Come on now. Um, and a lot of his teammates and fellow players in multiple sports leagues um, perhaps most notably LeBron, uh, took great issue with that. He subsequently rather quickly issued an apology. Um, but very interesting to see a lot of his teammates calling him to the carpet on this and calling him out on this. Um, I have to say his apology, I don't know if you've read it, but it read better than most apologies I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. um, made me think that he actually did believe some of what he was saying as opposed to Jake Fromm, who, a text was released this week 
in which he said he thought guns should be made more expensive so that only, quote, elite white people can buy them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And his apology consisted of saying, I'm sorry I said these things. I very much do not think of myself as an elite white person. And it's like, what? That was not at all what anybody was complaining about in that (laughs) statement, dude. But okay. Um, So uh, all that to say, I think we're very interested in how the NFL has responded to this, but also in how teams... Uh, within themselves come to understand these differences of political opinion and, and activism and other things. Yeah. And so I think what comes from that context for me are a couple questions. One is in which professional sports league, is there the most socioeconomic or political diversity within teams And then what do the leagues and what do the teams in particular do with that? How do they manage it? Uh, Is it something that is completely covered up and not talked about? Or is it something that is like actively incorporated and celebrated uh, to that being like maybe an ideal outcome to where the diversity is lauded and incorporated in such a way that it benefits the team and the individuals and the leagues and the fans and everyone involved with it? Uh, Or is it something that is not actively approached and in the worst circumstances just kind of like covered up such that rich, powerful white people maintain their power and their place and cover up marginalized voices? And I I think for me, there's an underlying humanist part of it of just curious of how uh, professional sports are forced to deal with the same thing that everyone has to deal with in the sense of like office dynamics, right? They, they, Mm -hmm. they, They work with each other, they're co-workers. And as is often the case in sports, because of free agency and other reasons, uh, creating a team is is complicated, it is difficult, and teams are constantly changing, and the world outside is changing, and so how teams negotiate that, that changing dynamic, and that they are literally teams, is interesting to me, and so often in the workplace, we talk about, like, creating a team, right, like, that's like a, a, a trope of capitalism <laughs> of like if you're a CEO, you need to create like a team dynamic and everybody in on it and all this thing. Well, they are actually teams that <laughs> have a set goal that they have to work towards. And so sometimes that goes well and sometimes it doesn't. And then, yeah, like you said, I, I think using Drew Brees in these examples is um, a, a fascinating look into like how on earth can you create a team when a leader of your team doesn't understand what life is like for his teammates. Like, what do you do in that space? And it is, you know, I think it's also somewhat fitting that we see this on the back of the Jordan thing, because I mean, um, it wasn't about racism necessarily at that point, but if there was ever a leader who didn't um, sympathize or understand the struggles of his lesser teammates, Jordan would certainly be in that category. Yeah, that's well said. But and so I, that makes go ahead. Well, I just uh, you know to kind of go to your point uh, about the um, the heterogeneity or homogeneity of uh, the different leagues. I think it's interesting in that the NFL, to my mind, seems to be clearly the most heterogeneous, and yet um, it's interesting in the way that that plays out, and that you know we still see. Uh, a plethora of white quarterbacks who seem to be out of touch with, I mean, it's notable that, you know, the examples that came up uh, in preparation for this were Josh Allen, Drew Brees, Tom Brady, and um, Jake Fromm, all white quarterbacks. Um, Mm -hmm. And Richie Incognito was the other one, uh, a white guy on the offensive line. But, you know, how many of these teams are led by quarterbacks that the rest of the team may not agree with? And like Tom Brady was, you know, after the 2016 election, what did the rest of that team think about him? How did they come to work together uh, mm-hmm. when I'm sure there were people that had anger and frustration about that? It is, um, 
uh, it, it's just really, I can't imagine it on some level. I remember walking into the office the day after 2016 election and one of my pro Trump coworkers was like, Hey, how you doing now? And I was like, fuck off. I, I literally said that in the office, which I can't believe I did, but, um, <laughs> like, that's amazing. How do you, like, I didn't really have to work directly with this person at all. We were just, we were in the office together. So how do you deal that when, you're the receiver, you're the ta- uh, left tackle for a team that, um, uh, and Tom Brady is the one that helped make this happen and you're supposed to still work with him every day. Yeah. Which I, I don't even know how to talk about it other than to say like anyone that has been a victim of racism knows that they've had to do that their whole life. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have, yeah, I, I can't even speak to that. I don't. I don't think. Other than I, I'm thinking of. Did you see Malik Jackson's response to Drew Brees' apology? I did not. No. So he plays for the Eagles. Uh, his his essentially was like, "That's cool. Drew can say that. He can keep his sponsors, but like, it doesn't mean anything to me." Uh, and he went on to talk about how racist the league is, and not just institutionally and structurally, but like. He's like, there are outright racists in the NFL, and I've played against them, and they've called me the N-word, and you can see it in their faces in the locker room that they don't like me because I'm black. And so it's it's another level that, again, that like Drew Brees' apology just can't touch. Um, And so it, it raises like a flag on so many levels, but it's that like ultimate one of just like, yeah, you, you have no idea. Mm -hmm. You truly have no idea. Um, well, I think even more than that, that you don't care. Um, mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's, um, you know, personally I've struggled to know how to respond to these things. And so I've kind of just come down on the side in many cases of, I don't know how to respond, but I care. Um, Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that, you know, showing and making these statements to the opposite, uh, it's just not an appropriate time, even if you believe something very strongly to make those statements, because if you really care about your friends and your colleagues and your other people of color, um, it's a very good time to stay quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're, it, or take action or take in action, substantive yeah. ways, right? It, it's... um. So, also, I don't know if you saw Howard Howard Bryant's piece, ESPN. Um, there's a quote I want to read from it that I, I found kind of like distills what we're interested in here or find worthy to talk about. Um, <clears throat> it's a couple sentences, but he said, A $15 billion industry that dominates the imagination of the public should have the strength to accommodate differing opinions, whether they belong to Kaepernick or Breeze. But the only opinions that received league-wide punishment were Kaepernick's. Mm -hmm. If the league, both Goodell and to another extent Breeze, expect the public to believe their statements, the next step toward real truth is opening the door to signing Kaepernick, a move that has been closed for nearly four years. If it remains closed, this flashpoint will be remembered as the moment the NFL admitted it handed out a life sentence, admitted it was wrong, and did nothing about it. And so I, I think what stands out to me and what I uh, appreciate so much about that is like not just the action either of just signing Kaepernick, but I take it to another level. Like there should be extreme punishment for blackballing Kaepernick, mm-hmm. right? If you really want to combat institutional systemic racism, there have to be punishment for those that are upholding and perpetuating institutional systemic um, racism. And that would be the owners. Doc, the owners pay. Did you have a hand in this whole Kaepernick thing? What comments did you say about it? Jerry Jones not allowing his players to kneel and saying he'll fire all of them if they do. Jerry Jones needs to be hit hard for that, right? Like that, not just like in the public sphere in the sense of like people speaking out against him, but like if Roger Goodell really cares, like take $100 million from Jerry Jones or not allow him to be an owner and say like we're not allowing owners that in any way, shape, or form ally themselves with something like blackballing of a player for a peaceful protest. I, I mean, go ahead and do it. 
Yeah, it's I, I'm immediately taken back to the Donald Sterling uh, discussions um, mm-hmm. and thinking about how contentious that was uh, and how that's perhaps the biggest issue with some of this is that these leagues are not independent consortiums or independent companies. They're um, run entirely by the owners. Um, and so, you know, perhaps in the NBA, we have seen the, the commissioner and some of these other folks stand up to the owners, but that is not something that I think given the current situation we can expect. And so does it raise this bar of how do we create systems that are not, um, uh, or leagues that are not beholden to the owners that have a that have a player stake or whoever else it might be, or just they're an independent organization uh, mm-hmm. that are involved in that decision making process. Mm-hmm. Not to take Goodell off the hook, the guy's clearly an ass, but I don't right. uh, at this point. I don't think we can expect him to do anything because he has clearly become and has always been just a mouthpiece for the rest of the ownership. Mm-hmm. And so this takes me to um, Rebecca Solnit's little book, Hope in the Dark. And if you're ever feeling down, it's a good book to pick up because it's essentially her working through examples where collective nonviolent action has worked and where um, – when individuals have spoken truth to power and come together, like good things have happened on the other side. And I think an example I saw this week, in addition to the accolades and admiration we should have for Colin Kaepernick, I found there to be a critical moment be when Patrick Mahomes Mm -hmm. uh, signed on to be part of that video that was addressed to Roger Goodell, Mm -hmm. asking him to say something of how much power there is in someone like a Super Bowl champion and how beloved he is in the NFL, both just from a fan standpoint, but then, of course, how much he matters financially to the NFL. Mm -hmm. And so how someone like Patrick Mahomes, I I feel, was like the final straw to some extent. That, And this is just my opinion, and I don't even pay that much attention to the NFL, so who cares what I think, but... I guess that just stood out to me. It was an accentuated specific moment where a really powerful voice felt like the, what really pushed through to the other side. Uh, I don't know. Well, I think, yeah, I think that also speaks to the power that comes from, um, not that I want to in any way say that, you know, Kaepernick is what in many ways made this happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but the power that comes when that voice of the activist finally reaches those at the top. Um, mm-hmm. And so like um, Mahomes, I think in some ways his voice is more powerful because he has not spoken up before. Um, mm-hmm. And so having him now speak up lends credence to it. And that's, again, not to say that the uh, uh, that way was paved by Kaepernick's incredibly... Um, resilient and I don't even have the words for it the way that he has changed the way we have this conversation um, mm-hmm. but that when you get those other folks involved that's when um, you get to see it and I think you know it, it represents a shift in player power perhaps in the NFL but you know it's I, I am also um, wondering how much other factors played into it I mean we just saw the fall of the XFL mm-hmm. um and so how much is the league saying, all right, if we really piss off the players, we now know that a model that has not very good players is not a successful financial model. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we have to cater to them in a way that we didn't think we had to before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so again, in, in my mind, it all comes down to that money question. Um, but that that money question is only provoked due to long-term sustained interactions from folks like Richard Sherman and Colin Kaepernick and a number of other uh, individuals. Mm-hmm. And it maybe it goes without saying, but I'm thinking of a scenario in which white privilege could be used for good would be something like Tom Brady saying, I'm not going to play this year until Jerry Jones is fined $100 million for what he said mm-hmm. about his players. What, what if Tom Brady put it all on the line? What, what would happen? How would 
how would the public respond? How would Roger Goodell respond? What, how would other owners respond? So I, I guess I just think of like what would happen if the most powerful white men in the league took legitimate action, like Kaepernick took legitimate action, if they really were willing to put it on the line. And I think of like, instead of playing uh, a charity golf match with Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson, what if, um, or maybe in addition to, I should say, and not hate on them too much, but in addition to doing that, they they took an, a stand like Kaepernick has. Well, I think there's an interesting um, question there as well. I'm intrigued to know, you know, because I think that part of the reason that this is not a bigger conversation and that we haven't talked more about this, I mean, we hear that these headlines pop up at least twice a year, it feels like, particularly in regard to the NFL, but they seem to pop up in every league where there's a couple of players who pass tweets or, you know, I think there's a kicker that was drafted this year that had a, you know, a white power tattoo and all these mm-hmm. things. Um, we see this stuff pop up, but we never kind of see the resolution to it. Um, and so I think that what we're seeing now is uh, hopefully a reshifting that gives more voice to the people of color in those locker rooms and beyond. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it makes me wonder like how much, you know, how much of their ability, these teams ability to still succeed and build a team in this point is based in the uh, idea that um, the, uh, the people that are being put upon the people of color, the black folks on the team are just kind of code switching to get along and recognize that maybe they need Tom Brady to be successful right now, so they have to put up with his crap. Um, right. Uh, but in a world where we've started to prioritize the voices of those that need to be prioritized, is that less likely to happen? And will we see teams that have to reshift because they have uh, a situation where in the past they could have expected everybody to the party line, but now there's a there's a climate where that's not acceptable anymore? What What will we see? Um, change in, in the makeup of these teams and, and in the ownership struggles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I'm i thinking of the conservative response, which is uh, racist and fear-driven, which is like anytime we give up power, we're potentially sacrificing the integrity of our institutions. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of how the NBA, while not perfect, maybe stands in as an example of how clueless owners are, for the most part, in my opinion, about how the world works, mm-hmm. in the sense that the NBA, I, in my opinion, has embraced that diversity of perspective and has embraced activist policies and is um, incorporating anti-racism more than any of the other leagues and is the most successful league in, insofar as it's grown the fastest in the last few years, um, or at least probably longer, right? Um, I would have to look at the exact well, yeah, numbers I think again. particularly in terms of a younger fan base, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's growth worldwide, too, mm-hmm. uh, which is another layer of incorporating a, a diverse mindset of what a sport is supposed to be and how it's supposed to work. So I, I guess it's just... Um, while the owners are still billionaires and withhold so much power, there's so little incentive for them other than to keep doing what they've been doing for a long time. Um, but what's ironic is that were they to incorporate a more diverse perspective and more activist policies, there's probably more money to be made. And this brings me to Mark Cuban was interviewed by The New Yorker this week. And I do not... I have all like I don't have many great things to say about Mark Cuban, um, but I, I guess there's something. So he, he promotes himself as an independent, and he says he's apolitical, and says that he's just a capitalist. Which okay, what, is there a more That's white not a man thing to say? Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I, it makes me think of how like even someone like that um 
can can be leveraged for the good of, of uh, the NBA community. Like even that's better than just uh, Richard DeVos, the owner of the Orlando Magic, who's a complete nutcase, as is the whole DeVos family. Um, I don't know. It, it just made me think that there's so much room for growth that if it just got going a little bit more, it, it, it has the potential to snowball in a good way. Yeah, and I think that this um, it raises, you know, kind of the ultimate concern for me, in that um, it worries me that we're uh, that we're seeing athletes lead this charge in some ways, um, mm-hmm. just in the sense that you know I think we, um, uh, at least I I will speak personally that. I have become less and less comfortable with how important sports are in our society. Mm-hmm. And yet here we are with a very important issue. And I'm very happy that, um, athletes are taking the lead in it, but, um, doing so only inflates the importance of these leagues, um, which are massively problematic to begin with. So, I mean, in some ways when we see, uh, these athletes, staying out here and we see and we're like, all right, I can support Greg Popovich and I can support, you know, the NBA, the way that they're handling this. Um, that then makes the NBA in some ways, a, uh, a goal for what we should be as a society in the NBA. No sports league should ever exist as a goal for that. It is mm-hmm. way too capitalistically driven and its decisions are entirely based on, what is going to be best for the league moving forward. So the reason that the league is allowing these statements and this can, is supporting them is because they see the money in the bottom line. Mm-hmm. It's not because the league really believes these things. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's really important that we understand that distinction mm-hmm. in this conversation. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. And it gets to the place of incentive incentives, mm-hmm. right? And when that really murky space where social and political change come together with capitalism and putting a price tag on social and political change in order to incentivize and catalyze the change we want to see. Yeah, that's a murky space. Yeah, but I, yeah. I, did you see uh, Ben and Jerry's uh, comment about Black Lives Matter this week? No, I hope it's a good one because I feel like they've always been on the front lines of that capitalism social change thing, and I don't want to completely give up on all that are making the attempt. <laughs> well, it was. It was by far the best statement. I mean, it was uh, it was phenomenal. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I'm still left with much the same feeling I am about the NBA or the NFL making these kind of comments in that uh, at the end of the day, Ben & Jerry still exists to make money. Uh, mm-hmm. And so you can't divorce that from these statements from that context. Mm-hmm. And so until we, you know, Ben and Jerry's becomes a uh, a black owned co-op with all of the money going back into the Burlington, Vermont community or whatever it is that, mm-hmm. that goes into these statements all feel somewhat lackluster to me. And I just, uh, just because in some ways I think that, um, you know, the issue of the moment has become police brutality and it's easy in some ways. I mean, I shouldn't say that. Um, uh, but in some ways that conversation is very easy to have for white folks and folks that kind of straddle the fence. Like, well, yeah, I saw this guy get murdered on camera. That's a horrible thing. I do not support that. And yet mm-hmm. what we, the conversation is so much bigger to talk about, Hey, we need to be talking about, you know, affordable housing. We need to be talking about mass incarceration. We need to be talking about, um, uh, unjust educational institutions, uh, education mm-hmm. funding. Um, uh, these are questions that need to be had. And that this, uh, this conversation, particularly from a corporate perspective seems to be much safer. And that, that is just disappointing that I feel like we're, um, particularly in the case of someone like Ben and Jerry's, which I think there is the potential for good. They're still, even in doing everything right and making the perfect statement, um, are perpetuating a system that, uh, is going to continue to exploit those that it can exploit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like then it's, it's this conversation about, um, 
or questions I have of like what reparations look like in the context of sports and how athletes and leagues and teams should talk about reparations, how they should talk about things like divestment. And if capitalism is going to be held on to as something that is an extremely helpful tool on the path towards a more just society and a let and a anti-racist society, then what does that mean financially? Um, how, how would these financial systems be set up? And that's where, for me, I get really confused in being a socialist that loves watching sports. <laughs> I went, right? What are, what, where do we go in that space? And what can we call good in that space? And what can we seek to emulate in that space? And I, I don't have answers to any of that. Yeah, I'm there with you. I think it's, um, you know, and... and uh, I'm a big believer in taking a two-pronged approach to these things that we take a, um, an immediate, uh, incremental action approach. And we also take a long-term systematic change approach. Um, so in the immediate term, we have immediate actions that we can kind of push these corporations and these governing bodies towards in terms of making stands and, um, and how do we, change the conversation and make it so that it's less likely that uh, a black man is going to be killed on the street. And it's less likely that um, we're going to, uh, we're going to see uh, black children growing up in poverty because of whatever. But the next step to that is that, you know, where do we get into reparations? Where do we get into funding schools in a way that is appropriate? Where do we get into, you know, the, um, setting up anti-racist education systems and mm -hmm. and policing structures more comprehensively where do we get into the immigration question here in the same way i think it's all kind of there's a next level to it where that doesn't mean we stop um and get hopeless in the moment that incremental change because it is that incremental change will benefit the lives of those that are, are here right now i mean Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think it's uh, you have to stay in both those places. I I think your point is just such a good one. I keep coming back to it of that because these athletes have such a broad voice and can reach so many ears. It is so easy to want to emulate them, and so easy to want to think that the spaces in which they work and the teams they play on are these structures that should be our models and should be emulated out in the real world and how that is uh, misinformation in the sense that like organizations like co-ops or the ACLU or <laughs> nonprofits uh, actually withhold that which you and I would find valuable and good were it to be incorporated into the professional sports world. And so in that way, it's like, while it is great that people like LeBron James and others and Kaepernick and so many have this have this massive voice, it also makes it seem that the world in which they exist is also automatically good. Um, or I can see how I even fall into that. You know, I, I can find myself thinking that. Well, and I think that it is uh, endlessly complex. I mean, um, you know... There are issues of sexism here that we mm -hmm. haven't even begun to dig into. You know, the NBA has done a reasonably good job of promoting the WNBA, but there's still a lot of folks, even in this most forthright of leagues, that um, don't understand the issues of sexism and equality between the genders and that we see mm -hmm. those issues there. And we, you know, that doesn't even begin to get us into some of the more uh, difficult things. I mean, we haven't talked about uh, campaign finance reform in the NBA, so we don't know where that is. So like to put them up as then as a, as a paragon of where we need to go becomes a, a dangerous proposition, even though in this moment we need their leadership. Um, mm -hmm. I kind of, you know, um, uh, I, I, I think we all have a bit too much hero worship. And so, appropriate leaders come up for appropriate situations and just we need to keep in mind that uh the appropriate leader now may not be the appropriate leader on everything but that doesn't invalidate their comments and contributions on this particular 
thing. Um, mm. You know, I think that um, uh, I'm trying to come up with an example. So, so Kaepernick as an example, there could we could learn that. Um, I, I, I shouldn't even say these things. We could learn that that Kaepernick has backwards views on trans individuals, mm-hmm. um, and yet that shouldn't invalidate his activism in this place. Um, we just know that we may need different leaders in those different spaces, mm-hmm. and we should still hold him accountable for that thing. But we sh- can still laud his efforts in this other mm-hmm. way. And I think that we're we've become a little too quick to look for I, that, I've become very judgmental on this podcast and I apologize, but um, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing you so fully and I also, I think, but I lament in my tone and in my word choices in this space is how prescriptive a lot of it comes mm-hmm. out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. And I, I wish I could do better of expressing things as a question and hope uh, that I can get better at that um, because so much of this space for me is just a question. And I think in this podcast space, is, it's, tr- it's trying out thoughts and we have a privilege and um, mm. we have microphones and um, I, I sometimes wish I was better at making it clear that it, it's um, the attempt to generate a conversation that values complexity. And I think when I distill all this down, that's where I arrive is that like um, unabashed singular lionizing of individuals or leagues or anything uh, is kind of maybe like one of the only things I feel confident standing on and saying like, it's like we don't want to do that. Um, and so everything else beyond that, I, I'm I'm kind of putting out as a question or an attempt to join an ally kind of thing. I I appreciate that sentiment so fully. I think you're absolutely right. I I find myself falling into the prescriptive category as well. And I've been the people that I find the most powerful are those that um share their own struggles with things. Um mm-hmm. and so instead of telling me what I need to be doing, they're the ones that are sharing how they're struggling and how they're moving forward with things. Um mm-hmm. And so that's I I hope that that we can be that voice, and I think it's important to note that we don't have any answers. We just see problems, and mm-hmm. um, uh, we are happy to dig into potential solutions, but we don't know what the hell is going to work, um, <laughs> right? Uh, and so, uh, but we want to have a conversation, and I think um, perhaps we err too much on the side of. Um, having a conversation um, and mm-hmm. there are times when focusing on the complexity slows things down in a way that uh, is not always appropriate but I do mm-hmm. think it's uh, uh, I kind of I guess in the end of the day do come down on the side of you need to understand at some point we need to examine the complexity and it's not always appropriate but um, we should always be aware of it in the back of our minds mm. Yes, I like that a lot. Yeah. Well, you got anything else, man? I don't think I do. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither, other than uh, um, uh, fuck you, Roger Goodell. Since I've already Seriously. said the F word once here, we're going to go for it again. So. <laughs> Yes. I, yes I will. So I will. Let me take that back. I will give them a small amount of credit and that in some ways it's a big middle finger to the man in the White House for them to do this. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think it means anything. But at the same time, uh, I will appreciate the gesture, if only because at this point in time, I appreciate a good bit of pettiness towards the gentleman in the White House because it seems to bother him a great deal. Indeed. Yes, and I, I guess maybe my last question is, I wonder what the majority of NFL fans are thinking. Mm-hmm. That, that's my number one curiosity right now. And so I'm, I'm ready for 538 or Gallup or some folks to uh, provide us with some data and some information on that. I guess uh, I'm not as curious as you are about that. I kind of just assume that that's a bunch of, it's 75% of folks saying, all right, let's just start the season already. Um, yeah but 
we'll we'll see. Um, there's a lot of NFL owners who still think they're going to be fans in this in the seats this fall, which is an asinine <laughs> thing to believe. So we'll see. Yeah. But you got any trivia for us this week? Yes. So last week I asked you who had the highest birdie average per round on the PGA Tour in 2019, and what was it? Um, I forget your guess. Patrick Reed, I Patrick think maybe. Reed. Yep, yep. Yeah. My uh, guess so was, it was really high. Yeah. So it was Justin Thomas, and he averaged 4.58. And in my amateur look back through some of the data, I didn't look exhaustively. It looked like it was one of the highest averages. Dustin Johnson, a couple years before, was a little bit higher, but uh, it's normally around like f- just over four. So even Tiger Woods in his heyday was just over four birdies per round. Which, yeah, I think is interesting because we often think about who wins a golf tournament, and it's usually someone that I bet on. And again, I don't have the exact numbers, but I bet an average of like more than 12 under par. Mm-hmm. And so you think that's more than four birdies per round in uh, the four rounds of a tournament. But it's those players. And so Justin Thomas was number one player in the world uh, uh, for most of 2019. So... You just got to make four and a half birdies around, and you'll be uh, you'll make thirty million dollars a year playing golf. Well, it makes me wonder about how much year to year the uh, hosting venue for the U.S. Open and British Open matters for this, Mm. right? Because the British Open can be anything from like St. Andrews, where we would expect twenty under plus, to Mm -hmm. you know some place where we could see somebody win with four or five under. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. Open, of course, is can be a dramatically difficult course. And so how much, given that these players are maybe playing 20 tournaments, how much can those two particular tournaments sway that average, you know, 0.2 or 0.3 in any direction? Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, and not to spend even too much more time on it because it's completely meaningless. So this is complete, just like... <laughs> Welcome to the fluff at the end of the show. Yeah, this is fluff of fluff, but... Uh, it raised the question for me of like uh, the goal of golf hmm. and how is the goal of golf to make a birdie? And then it becomes like, okay, how am I going? If if one is a golfer uh, attempting to make money playing golf, how am I going to uh, set myself up to make birdies? Like that's hmm. all that matters. Um, and so that would be an interesting way to like set a goal for what golf is and how to be a professional golfer. That's a useless question uh, that no one cares about. Um, paying attention to tennis a little bit this week, I uh, was thinking about what Serena Williams is up to, and it was also interesting. I don't know if you saw what her husband had did. Yeah. Yeah. So he's given up his position on the board of Reddit and is saying that he needs to be replaced by a non-white person. And... That's a whole other conversation. But uh, I was looking at some Serena Williams stuff, and I was going to look into her records to see if there would be a good trivia question about her records and was fascinated to find that she has a Wikipedia page just for awards and records. (laughs) There are like thousands. It is really quite incredible. And so I landed on uh, Player of the Year. And so Serena Williams has been named Player of the Year seven times, Interestingly, that is not the most. There is a player that has eight. Do you know which WTA player has Mm -hmm. been named player of the year eight times? Interesting. I'm hesitant to even take a guess. My immediate response is uh, Navratilova, but uh, I feel like she's too recent uh for that but i don't know all right martina navratilova yeah okay uh a, a side question do you know the last time federer got player of the year this was Ooh. surprising to you no i'm gonna because it's surprising i'm gonna guess it was something like 2005 but um no idea okay navratilova in 2005 yeah all right. Alrighty. All right. Well, thank you, Kyle, and thank you all for listening. Please give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this. Um, 
Again, we don't know what the hell we're talking about. We don't have any answers. We hope we're just participating in a conversation in a somewhat meaningful way. Uh, And we'd love to hear your thoughts and have you participate alongside us. So please give us a rating and review and reach out um, wherever you're interested in doing so. We'd love to have a conversation. But uh, yeah, have a great week and thanks, Kyle. Thanks, man. To pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's 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 calling LeBron Black Jesus. I was a huge Dikembe Mutombo fan.